Howdy, folks. I hope you are having another epic week and are absolutely crushing it and enjoying some some plant-based meals, whether that's all your meals or more, whatever it is. I hope you are enjoying some, some new recipes and delicious flavors. And most of all, I hope you are enjoying quality time with your loved ones. Today's episode is all about happiness. I sat down with Emily Hazel, a friend of mine from Melbourne, who is the founder of one of Australia's, if not Australia's, number one plant-based friendly cafe, Serotonin. Serotonin is based in Burnley, which is in Melbourne, which, if you are unfamiliar with Melbourne, is in the inn east next door to the suburb Richmond, which is actually where I used to live. So every time I head back to Melbourne for a visit, walking into Serotonin feels like a little slice of home. It's a happy place for me and no doubt for thousands of other Melburnians who frequent it so regularly. And what a fitting name Serotonin is for this cafe. Emily has thought of so many creative ways, a lot of attention to detail, to ensure that everything is about boosting your mood. From offering incredibly friendly service, super comfortable and intimate eating spaces, and of course, nourishing food. Emily really is an incredible person, a deep thinker who understands there is so, so much more to life than just making money. And for this, I really admire her. And that is exactly why her purpose-driven business, Serotonin, in the side streets of a quiet neighborhood, has absolutely thrived. Fascinatingly, Emily was never destined for a career or life in hospitality. She studied interior architecture and graphic design, And through her own personal health and wellness journey, which she elaborates on in this episode, fell into the idea of creating the serotonin space. Emily has a super cool outlook on life and a real passion for being happy and creating happiness around her. And as always, guys, if you think this episode or perhaps a previous episode of the Plant Proof Podcast would benefit a friend, relative or colleague, just copy the link. Shoot it over to them, SMS, email, social media, whatever it may be. The worst thing that can happen is they don't listen. And the best thing that can happen is together, you and I, we change their life for the better. And if you have one or two minutes spare and haven't left a review on iTunes, I would be forever grateful. The more positive reviews, the higher the show ranks, which means more people can discover it. So let's jump into this episode and hear from Emily Hazel on how she founded Serotonin and what happiness means to her. Emily Hazel, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks, Simon. So let's just set the scene for where we're sitting. We're in Utopia. Mm-hmm. Utopia Place. Which is the sort of, is it the sister part of Serotonin? Yeah, it's my brand new event space that's right next door to Serotonin Eatery. And we are in Richmond or Burnley. Burnley, yep. Burnley in, uh, in Melbourne, which is a, a fringe suburb of the city. And we are situated in sort of nearish to a train line. So if you do hear <laughs> any trains, that's, um, that's part of my ethos. We're next to the train line, tram line, bike path, freeway. So it's, it's, it's easy to get here. No excuses. There is transport options everywhere. <laughs> so Emily, I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing your story and hearing about the evolution of Serotonin Cafe, which is 
no doubt, you know, it's the most well-known plant-based cafe in, in Melbourne, probably in Australia. Your growth in the last three years has been phenomenal. Every time I walk into this space, I, I feel at home. Last year, it was actually the most searched cafe in Melbourne. There you which go. Is so exciting to be a plant-based cafe and be the most searched. So there's some, there's some hard statistics to back up what I am saying. And last night, we, we actually had a health summit event mm-hmm. in, in Utopia. So in the space we're sitting in now, and that was a great event. So people came, they enjoyed delicious food prepared by serotonin. I spoke, a couple of the speakers, you spoke. It was fun. Yeah, really conscious crowd, really cool night. Serotonin is, is actually called serotonin dealer, right? So I am the serotonin dealer. You are the serotonin <laughs> And my dealer. staff are all my serotonin dealers as well. We spread the happiness, but it's called serotonin eatery. And then serotonin exercise, which is our gym, and serotonin education is the education program. So serotonin, what, what is serotonin? Can you define that? Serotonin is a mood stabilizing cafe set in a sensory experience. So I'd never even worked a day in hospitality before I opened, but before I opened, I was actually a food blogger and my friend and I were writing a food blog together and we were keeping a book. And in the front of the book, we had everything we loved about hospitality in Melbourne. And in the back, we started a list of everything we hated. So I really wanted to solve all of those problems. And in terms of serotonin itself, we know that, you know, 80 or 90% of, of serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter, is produced in, in the gut. And so obviously eating, eating healthy is very important for maintaining this molecule in our body. How has that influenced your, your menu and what you've actually put on the menu at serotonin? Yeah. So I say serotonin is a happiness cafe. So everything we do here is to make you happy or to stabilize your mood. So all the food has naturally occurring tryptophan, which is the precursor to serotonin. So when you come here, all of the drinks and meals that you actually eat are going to stabilize your mood and calm you. So as well as everything in the design, I actually went back to uni and studied interior architecture and graphic design. So I designed the whole fit out here and everything is designed to just calm you and ease anxiety and make you have a better day. Just to describe that, to paint the picture, there's you know really cool private booths where groups of, of friends can come and sit down. There's swings. So you can sit down at, um, at your table and, and swing back and forth. In my design process, I really looked at how everyone eats. So in the restaurant, we have seven different styles of eating. So these are the Japanese booths. And I love that you can close a curtain and have an intimate night. And then we have the big sort of tables. I've got a lot of Italian friends and I love how they feast. So I wanted to have the big communal tables. And then there's a lot of little private spots in Melbourne. People use cafes to co-work from and to have meetings from. But I find at other cafes that everyone can hear your conversation. And when I'm speaking to, for example, my new head chef years ago when we were designing the menu for here, I wanted somewhere private to sit. So I've designed it so that everyone gets a little private booth. And the, the cafe, the menu itself is plant-based menu. Yep. Growing up, is that the way you, you ate? Was that you know, your lifestyle? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, growing up, I had very standard Australian diet, you know, meat and some veg, as we talked about last night, was kind of not the hero of the plate at all. The meat was the hero. And then there was maybe a side salad or some veg. And that was just what mum knew how to cook. That's what she learned was best. You know, she thought she was looking after us. But then as I got into my teenage years, I was going through what I like to call mood funks. So I think everyone can relate to mood funks, but I was going through depression. I was very suicidal. 
And that started when I was about 15, 16 and I was at school. So I was speaking to school counsellors and I was doing anything that I knew at the time. And then it continued until I was 21. What, what do you think was, you know, triggering that, that sort of low feeling, self-worth? What, what was what Now was looking that? back, it was, you know, not eating the right foods. It was not sleeping enough. It was, you know, about year eight when we sort of started to get phones. They were not the iPhones we know today. <laughs> but I was staying up late, talking to friends and getting up and going to school. I was struggling to get out of bed because I'd be up until the hours of the morning texting friends, talking on the home phone, and I wasn't getting enough sleep. Now I know how important sleep is and exercising as well, regularly exercising, but not overdoing it. Back then I was in rowing. I was stroke of the first rowing. I was playing for three basketball teams, two netball teams. I was in the snow sports. I was in the athletics. So I was probably absolutely burnt out as a teenager. Plus you're trying to just have your teenage years. Um, I was going out a lot. I was drinking. And on top of that, no doubt everyone's asking you, what do you want to do with your life? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you've got so much stress for some poor 15, 16 year old kid trying to pick what they want to do for VCE years because that's going to influence what they do for the rest of their life. How did you address that? How did you tackle that? So I moved out of home when I was 18 and it probably got worse then. I was going out more and drinking more. And I took myself to the doctor near where I just moved. And this was a brand new doctor. I'd never seen her before. It wasn't my family doctor. And I told her these symptoms I'd had. And after a 10 minute consultation, she prescribed me antidepressants. And I just, thank God I was so smart. I went home and I did my own research that night. And I found in particular this one peer reviewed article that always Um, stood out and it was three women in the UK who'd been stuck on antidepressants for 30 years, some of them. And they said they were just numb to the world. They just hadn't been able to deal with anything and now they couldn't get off them. So that exact same night, I started researching natural happiness and I was finding out ways just to naturally make myself happy. And I started to make little changes. But after a couple months, it was about three months, the word serotonin kept coming up in my research. And I really resonated with it because happiness is kind of exponential. When are you happy? So serotonin was more about mood stabilization, just being calm and just taking care of yourself in the time. So I started to work out ways to increase my serotonin levels naturally. And that was sleeping, eating fruits and vegetables, complex carbohydrates and exercising. But just for 23 minutes a day, the research I found, just raising your heart rate rather than burning yourself out and burning your adrenals while you work out. And what what year was all of that sort of unfolding? So that was when I was 21, so about... 2012. Okay. And career-wise, what were you, what were you sort of digging, digging into then? I had started a nanny agency on the side. I have a lot of cousins and I started, I have a lot of cousins. <laughs> that was my peanut butter smoothie. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> uh, um, I started a nanny. I just started to nanny for all my aunties and uncles and then their neighbors started asking and then I just started an accidental business off the back of that. I had to get my friends involved and then in the end I ended up having 300 families who were working for nannies and nannies and it was a huge business. And then when I finished school, I was doing these at the same time. Um, I came home from school as I remember and mum was like, okay, well, go get a job. I told her I didn't want to go to uni straight away. And I printed off two resumes. One I put into the baker, which was closest to our house. And then next door was the bank. And I got both jobs, but I took the bank. So I worked for the bank for the next three years. And I loved that. I loved the customer service aspect of that. So you were working at the teller? like? Yeah, I started as the on the teller and then I was the concierge and then customer service specialist. Like loved that business because the same week that I started, they got a brand new CEO. And he, uh, they brought him over from New Zealand. And what he'd done in New Zealand was take the worst customer service bank to the best. And he was doing that with CBA at the time. 
So I had all this really great training on customer service and how to make people happy. And all my customers nicknamed me Smiley. Like I just loved that. And I got into the business banking and I was talking to all these really inspiring people about all their small businesses in the area. And they moved me from the small branch I was at to Chapel Street to train up all of the tellers there. And it was a really cool community. But I was working 8.30 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. every day. And the furthest you would walk was from your desk to the lunchroom. And in the lunchroom, there was, you know, chocolate boxes where you put $2 in. It was just a really unhealthy life. Didn't see the sun. And then I was going out on the weekends. Yeah. So did, did you, I mean, you're looking back on that now and you mm-hmm. can sort of obviously see the positive out of that experience in yeah. terms of the skills, the customer service skills there have, you know, no doubt filtered through to serotonin. But back then, you know, you put your resume and you got this job. Was it just a job or were you actually in it going, okay, I'm learning skills here that I'm going to go on and use? A bit of both. I think I'm always very forward thinking and that's what's enabled me to do this. And I kind of, if I had have stayed in the bank, I would have gone into lending or financial planning or something like that. But it wasn't sort of nourishing enough for me. And at what stage did you, did you, did you break away from the bank into serotonin or was there something else in between? So I'd always wanted to own something in hospitality. And ever since I was about 16, I'd been working on this business plan. My friends and I, where I grew up, we used to go to a Japanese restaurant pretty much seven nights a week. It was so cheap. And we'd go there and it was just really quick service. And we'd go in and the food was really satiating. When you leave Japanese restaurants, I love how you never feel sick. You just feel really satisfied. And I wanted to put that into a breakfast place. As we finished school, we all started brunching in Melbourne, Mm. but you would leave and you would just feel terrible. People are using really bad salts and really bad oils. And so I'd started this idea for a Japanese cafe. And that's actually where the concept started for serotonin. So Every holiday I went on while I was working at the bank, I took a journal with me and in the back I would journal and these exact booths we're sitting in, I designed when I was 19. (laughs) So I started journaling this Japanese cafe idea. But then at that same time, when I was 21, I started to learn about you can eat food high in serotonin. And I was still about a year after I was eating a high serotonin diet and feeling incredible, but I was still working on this Japanese cafe idea. And it was a friend of mine who told me and he doesn't remember. But he said, why don't you open up a serotonin cafe? It's like, you're eating this way. Why wouldn't you share this with everyone else? And I was like, of course. So that was my light bulb moment. And I started to do a sort of business plan then. And I did a costing of how much it would be to have an architect and how much it would be to have the graphic designer. And I started to do this costing and I was like, all right, we're going to have to keep saving for a while. But what I actually did was went back to uni and I had to look how much it was for me to do those courses. And it was a quarter of the price just to do the course myself. So I went and studied interior architecture and graphic design. And then for those three years that I was doing the double degree, I was working on the business plan. And in my final semester, I actually picked up a business subject. And then I had a teacher there help me do a 12-week business plan. And it was on everything here. I look back at that business plan and it has just unfolded to a T, even this exact location, which wasn't even for rent then. So there was a lot of planning in terms of you you didn't just sort of jump in blindly. (laughs) You did choose, I guess, a a location which I, I, I think, you know, potentially even friends and family may have thought it was risky. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of painting the picture again for, yep. for you guys listening, serotonin is sort of tucked away in a private pocket of a suburb. There are some very, very busy streets in walking distance, but you've chosen a, you know, sort of an alleyway, some yeah. quiet place. What was the inspiration behind the location? I'm a big believer in, I'll give it a couple of different words so I don't lose anyone, goal setting, praying or I call it manifesting. So I had a vision board for serotonin and it had everything on there that I wanted. 
one of the things was I wanted to be across from a park just before I opened. I actually went over to LA and I saw the huge vegan scene that was over there. And I love how everything in LA, they have so much room. Everyone has their own private car park and you can park right next to the restaurant. These courtyards are huge. You can't do that in Melbourne and I definitely couldn't do that on my budget. So the location I found was adjacent to this beautiful park. And I really feel like it's an extension of the cafe now. And we have picnic baskets that you can take over and sit in the park. And people, like we're right on the bike path, so people will bring their dogs here into the dog-friendly courtyard. And I wanted to try and create more space than I had. Obviously, we said we're next to the train line. So it's really accessible. It's the center of Melbourne, but no one's heard of this suburb, Burnley. So when I was building, my dad and my brother are both builders and they were helping me heaps with the build. We were sitting in here looking out and my dad won Tuesday afternoon was like, nobody walks past him. What are you doing? He was freaking out on me. And I was like, it's all right. I've got Instagram. I've got Facebook. Mm. You know, he didn't know the power of social media and I could tell people where I was. Yeah. And that's what Melbourne loves, back streets, hidden destinations. So you you say this place wasn't available when you were starting your Yeah. When I started by actually I printed off a map of Melbourne and I literally circled an area. I had been living in Paran at the time. Um, I lived there for 10 years and all my friends were starting to move north of the river. So I circled this area and it was Hawthorne and Abbotsford and Cremorne and Richmond. And I physically drove the streets in my car looking at places that are unusual. Like I'd obviously just studied interior design. So I really wanted to fit out something myself. So I literally drove the streets and found this location. It was an old milk bar at the time, but I just loved the corner location. And it wasn't for Lisa at that stage? It wasn't for Lisa. It was a working milk bar, very dodgy working milk bar. But I also looked at old cricket clubs and old football grounds and things like that. These places that have fit and healthy people, but it is completely underused. There was an old bowls club that I looked at, but this one just ticked every single box that I had. I had about 50 different things that I was looking for. And then after I finished uni, so I did the business plan on this location just as a joke. And then I drove past six months after I finished uni and then there was a lease sign up. So Wow. And you went through the process and applied for the lease. Yep. You got it then did everything just sit in and you're like, <laughs> okay, here we go. That would have been nice. Well, didn't really do that much research, it turned out. So <laughs> you should always probably take over something. Great tip for everyone that was an existing hospitality location. I had to put in everything. So there was a tiny milk bar at the front and I'm pretty sure they were illegally living out the back. So every room, there was a different color for every room. The ceiling was falling in. So I had to gut the whole place and it turns out that there was a heritage overlay on the building as well. So I went through town planning for nine months. And finally, I got everything that I wanted in the end, but it was a lot of money, a lot of time, you know, wasted or not wasted because in that time I got to build my social media following. So by the time we even opened, I had 15,000 followers and people were coming and knocking on the door as we were building because I was doing so much social media. They thought we were already existing. How were you, how were you building that, that, that community without being open? What, what sort of content were you posting? Yeah. Well, I don't think Instagram even looked like it did now. We didn't have stories or anything like yeah. that. So I was doing a lot of videos. If you go right down the bottom, you can see some of my funny old ones. I was just showing people the lifestyle I was living. So I was fruitarian at the time. Yep. So I'd come straight from being a meat eater and I went straight to Banana Island back in the day and I did Banana Island for 10 days, which is not a physical location. I was having 30 bananas a day for 30 days. Not something I really recommend anymore, but for me, it just completely reset my body. And then from then on, I never went back to eating meat. So I went from there and then I, that summer did a trip up the East Coast. So eating fruit up in Queensland is so easy and it's all organic and ripe on the side of the road. It's a little bit harder to do in Melbourne now, but I was fruitarian for the first six months and I just had so much energy and it just changed my life so quickly. So I remember there was actually a great food truck around the corner that's now moved up to Byron and I was having an acai bowl and protein balls every day. So 
And were you surprised by the traction in that sort of nine month period before you opened the people that were connecting with you on social media? Were you yeah. and were you thinking, okay, I'm 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 onto something here? Yeah, I I remember finding so many funny pages, and I think back now that people are my best friends, I met them in that period on social media. So a good friend of mine, Sarah, who owns Matcha Milk Bar, she was running Matcha Maiden, her green tea company. And she had such a great feed. It was just, you know, obviously green. It looked great. And we started chatting. And the very first day I opened was actually, the first week was just meant to be for friends and family. I'd never worked a day in hospitality before I opened. I was learning everything from scratch. And Sarah rocked up with 12 blogger friends and I hadn't even tasted the menu yet. And I was like, oh God. So I only let them order drinks that day. I don't even know if they know this story. I only let them order drinks that day. I told them the kitchen wasn't open because I knew once they put up photos, that was it. That was going to be my brand. So I told them they can come back a week later. And I put a little courtyard table set up for them. I remember it had tea candles, but the photos they took that morning did go viral. And that weekend we had Broadsheet come. We opened on a Wednesday. Broadsheet came on a Thursday. I begged them not to put the article up. They put it up and then that weekend we had a thousand people. Wow, a thousand people. So that business just went from there. How, how many how many square how many seats are there in this place? So inside we've got about sixty seats. The courtyard has forty and now we've just launched the event event space which seats fifty. So to Over put that into perspective, a thousand <laughs> people, that's you know, people would have been waiting a little bit. Yes. Well, now we actually see the same amount of people on a weekend but my systems have been dialed in. So now people don't wait. And we kind of, you know, it gives you a bad name at the start. Oh, don't go to serotonin. You're going to wait forever. So now you'll never wait more than 10 minutes. I've That's worked. crazy. In your first month or so, and you're getting oh a thousand God. people <laughs> through the door and you hadn't had experience in hospitality. There must've been a lot of learnings. There must've been, you know, some potentially some muck ups. Yep. What, what did you learn in that period of just craziness? I think I was so lucky that I'd been actually up in Sydney and I'd been doing a business course and they taught me a lot, but they taught me to find people in the industry and learn from them. So I got a friend down who owns a cafe in Torquay and he was here the day before I opened. He trained up all of my staff with me and I was listening to every word, taking notes. And then he was here the day, the first two days, and I begged him to say the third, but he had to go back to his own cafe. Three months prior, I'd been doing all of my hiring as we were doing the build. And I hired all of these amazing nutritionists and naturopaths, all these girls who were in their final year or couldn't find work after they'd graduated. The day we opened, the bell rang None of them actually had any hospitality experience either. So pretty much we had to fire everyone after the first day and then we had to start again. And I called on friends and family. And the first six months was a lot of friends helping me out. It was a lot of learning curves. And the the chef and I guess mm-hmm. the creation of the meals, who was responsible for that and putting the serotonin spin on on the entire menu and being the first plant-based or vegan cafe in Melbourne, yeah. how important was it to to really nail that menu? For me, I'd been eating at all of these cafes and as my diet started to change, what I could order was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm sure you and the listeners know. I started to build my meals just off the sides. But even if you order mushrooms, they will have put oils and butter and it was getting so hard. I was just having like toast and peanut butter when I went out. So I designed the ethos, which is we've got a 21-step kitchen ethos, which I've never really made public. But these are things like Every meal has to be a rainbow of color so that you're getting all of your nutrients. Everything we do here is gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free. And there's 21 steps that the chefs follow when designing every meal. So I give all of the chefs that, which gives them a heart attack because all they learn is (laughs) about fat and cream (laughs) and butter. And then I come up with the meals. So for example, I told them back before poke bowls, we did this um, deconstructed sushi. So I sort of give them what I want. And then they make it taste good. So it's really collaborative. We sit down every three months still and we come up with seasonal meals. We look at 
what's in the markets at the time. And we look at, you know, what's trending, what do customers actually want, what sort of, we never really use superfoods. I love the ethos of serotonin. It's about eating a whole food diet. So I knew it was going to work because I didn't jump onto any trends. You know, it's just we're serving fruit and vegetables here. I do help people with all different dietary requirements, but everything on the menu is just an abundance of vegetables. In terms of, I guess, early feedback, Mm -hmm. was the feedback, you know, really positive? Was it mainly vegans or plant-based or vegetarians coming in and eating or who who was coming into your restaurant at the start? And what was that early feedback? So I think it's okay to say here, but I don't use the V word. I say they're naughty words. They're swear words to me. It scares people, vegan, vegetarian. So that's why we just call ourselves plant-based. And now I get, I would say maybe only 10% of the customers are actually plant-based, but it's really good. I get to bring these customers in and I get to teach them you can have beautiful breakfast without having to add bacon, without having to add eggs, and you can be satiated and you can be satisfied and full. So one of my favorite examples was we had these boys that lived across the park here and they were cuter, like six foot eight guys. I think they were basketball players. They used to come in all the time, squish into the Japanese booths. <laughs> and they had been coming for about eight months. And after eight months, they looked and they were like, oh, there's no meat on your menu. And that was just like the best aha moment for me. I was like, it's great. You know, they didn't miss anything. It was so smooth. And just, and baked yeah. beans and everything that you would want. And because I eat a really high carbohydrate diet, you're really full after you eat everything here. And I think that's really important that you can, you can friends can bring their, you know, yep. non-plant-based, non-vegan <laughs> friends here and they can still have a really wonderful experience. Yeah. And it works both ways. Mums and brothers are really happy to bring their plant-based girlfriends or whoever because they know that they'll have something to eat too. From those early days, how has the, the menu sort of developed? I know that you just said you, you look at trends and what's popular at yeah. the time, but if you look back at the 2015 menu and you compare it to now, how different is it? I think the main thing that's different is my first chef was vegetarian. Took me a long time to find him. He was from Byron and he was incredible. And a lot of the four of the meals that he created with me are still on the menu today. And my regulars know what they are. And if I take them off, they said they'll hunt me down. So what are those? So we've got the positive pancakes and we have the nutrition bomb. And that's my favorite. So it's like a big kind of salad breakfast bowl, which has sort of been copied everywhere now. And it's got complex fats, complex carbohydrates. And then we also have the acai bowl and we have the smashed avo. So they're the four staples that I'm not allowed to change every time I change the menu. And then we've had some, like we have this beautiful um, Mexican waffle dish that we can only have seasonally because we use heirloom tomatoes, but things like that have come back for the last three years because the customers ask it to come back. But my chef that I have now is actually the first vegan chef that we've had. And he has brought a whole new flair to the menu. We've just launched our whole new menu uh, two weeks ago. And he really gets the ethos. He's the first chef I haven't had to educate the ethos to. And my general manager is vegan and she's been vegan since birth and she's 34. So she was the one who was keeping all of the old chefs on their toes, telling them, you can't use this. You can't use that ingredient. Like we love to be sugar free. So using things like maple syrup instead. And some of the chefs just really don't get it. I've got some gorgeous Thai chefs. Vicky's my sous chef and she just doesn't understand the no sugar thing. <laughs> she uses <laughs> sugar in all of her cooking at home. So it's been a huge education thing with my chefs. But a lot of the staff that work here, uh, one of my old staff members who was here for two and a half years, when he left, he was so sad because he was like, "M, the only vegetables I eat are when I get my staff lunch. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what I'm going to eat. And in terms of the, I guess, the growth of, of business and the people that are coming, are, are you seeing more and more people coming from interstate and overseas? Um, 
driving long distances to get here or, yeah. or is it a very, very community sort of based cafe? Definitely all of my locals are my locals. They come every day for their peanut butter latte, gingerbread latte, and they go to another cafe. They're like, you know, they don't have macadamia milk everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So I've definitely got my local community and I've got people that eat here every single day. And then even back from the start, I have customers who were driving from Geelong, which is an hour away, people from Berwick, an hour away. The ones that really stood out to me were these dads. I had some dads who were driving an hour to bring their kids for lunch. And I just love that. And they, you know... They're like, there's nothing in our areas and they were driving and it's easy that we're on the freeway. You can jump off right at the freeway exit and they can be here quickly. But there, it just really isn't. A lot of people have tried to emulate what I've done here, but they don't know this 12, 21 step ethos that I have behind the food. They might do rainbow food, but it's full of dairy and they put something on top of it and the sauces they use are just full of oils. So people are really trying to emulate it, which is incredible. And that's, I couldn't want to be copied more because now I have more places to eat brunch, but people really have to think about the food and actually make it clean whole food. Sounds like there's a lot of effort that has gone into making this menu. Just jumping back to you yourself personally, Mm -hmm. and you you, you set up this thriving cafe. What effect has that had on your, I guess, close family and friends who may not be eating a plant-based diet? Have they been sort of encouraged to eat more plants? Has there been some interesting conversations and learnings there? Yeah, my partner went plant-based after I went plant-based and definitely my family and friends are eating more plant-based and they're just a lot more conscious, which is all I can ask. You know, to make the jump is hard, but if you just start to be more conscious and you start to think about everything, because I think when you go vegan, you also think about the animals, you think about the environment and you think about your whole life, you know, fast fashion. It just really is a flow on effect. So everyone around me has definitely become more conscious. And I think I've made friends through coming through opening serotonin, a lot of the customers are now my friends. So I have a really conscious group of people around me. And most of my friends are 90% plant-based. And coming up for serotonin, is there anything else in the pipeline? Are you looking at, at other locations or other ways to sort of expand what you're doing and reach more people? My staff think that I'm mad every day. I come and tell them something new we're doing. <laughs> but um, we've just got a radio segment, a weekly radio segment on the station here in Melbourne. So that's going to be amazing, educating people on plant-based. and just- Awesome. Natural happiness is what I'm so passionate about. And then we're also launching serotonin Airbnbs. So this is a travel. <laughs> Simon's that sounds cool. <laughs> that sounds cool. So Tell us about that. I travel around a lot. And when I go to places, for example, my house is a vegan house. So I don't have leather and I don't have animal products in the fridge. And when I travel, I get to someone's house and I might be doing a share at Airbnb if I'm in Sydney for the weekend for a business course. And yeah, there'll be milk in the fridge. And it's just a little thing that you just don't think of because in my house, I just don't buy it. So we've got three so far and they're all serotonin Airbnbs. So it's a vegan Airbnb, everything from, you know, the bedding to the furniture to what's in the fridge, but then we've added a serotonin element. So we've got a great little book that you get when you arrive at all of them. And you could be from Melbourne and you could hire the Melbourne one because it's meant to be like a staycation location. So you have masseuse come. Where would you book this? So you can just book them through Airbnb. Through Airbnb. Yep. Okay, yep. Cool. They'll be up on our serotonin website. So awesome. you also get serotonin breakfast delivered. So you get Uber Eats serotonin breakfast from us. And then we've got our homemade almond milk in the fridge. We've got our homemade muesli and things like that. Just those little creature comforts. Yeah. I know personally when I book an Airbnb, I usually email them mm. and just say, hey, don't worry about the milk and the eggs. Yeah. Just because otherwise it goes to waste. Yeah. And I don't really drink alcohol. A lot of people leave wine and leave champagne and things like that. I'm like, don't worry about it. You know? And I want to, I always ask them, where's the best place to bike ride? Where's the place, best place to view the sunset? All these things that I feel like my friends love doing. 
So I'm including all of those best places to do yoga in the area. So it's a little book with everything that I would want. I just keep solving my own problems. That's awesome. Next time I'm down, I will be staying in one of those for sure. Now, you mentioned natural happiness. Mm -hmm. What does happiness mean to Emily Hazel? Ooh, a friend asked me this the other day, but for me, like I said, happiness was never exponential. When I started my research, I read a great analogy about someone who said, when I get into uni, I'll be happy. And then they got into uni. And then so they said, okay, when I pass, I'll be happy. And then they pass. So then they put in the future again. Okay, when I get HDs, I'll be happy. So I really like the fact that happiness is in the present moment for me. So one of my favorite books was The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. And it really talks about compassion. And once I learned compassion and gratitude, that's sort of taught me to be more mindful. Mindful is a big word that I've, it comes up a lot and I still haven't got a full grasp on what it means to me, but I'm starting to realize that it means having gratitude and compassion, kind of living in the moment and looking in all around. Like just before we were talking about, you know, the bank and at the time I wouldn't have realized how grateful I was for that, but learning and being compassionate for all other humans is now what happiness means to me. I can be happy in any situation and anything can arise and I can bring myself back to happiness. I know you have a 12, 12 steps yes, to happiness. Yes, serotonin formula. Could you walk us through, through that? Yep. So one of the main ones is obviously eating fruit and vegetables and spending time outdoors is a huge one for me. So spending time in nature actually increases your serotonin levels. And that's why I wanted to be across from the park. Stopping the stimulant cycle is a huge one I love to educate people on. In Australia, we're all stuck on this stimulant cycle. And we get up in the morning, we have coffee that drops off. And then in the afternoon, we have a sugar hit that drops off. And in the evening, we have alcohol or whatever you want to take. And I think you missed one or two coffees. <laughs> people in Melbourne, there's, there's a lot of coffee consumption. My poor down barista, there's a lot of coffee going on. <laughs> people don't understand what that does to their body. And then by the time you go to bed, you're not getting a good night's sleep at all. And that's why you wake up, you're exhausted, and then you need another coffee. We call them face palmers. They come in in the morning and they won't even talk to us until they've had their coffee. <laughs> so if you can reduce, hopefully stop all of these things. And the best way to, for me to stop coffee was just to replace it with smoothies. People kind of freak out. But if you replace your morning coffee with a beautiful, say, peanut butter smoothie, you're excited for that. You're not missing out on something. And I've helped a lot of friends come off coffee. And it's not something you should never have. You can catch up with friends for coffee, but I think we're so lucky in Melbourne. And I really wanted to be at the forefront of this. Like I love chai lattes and you can get those everywhere. But now we have beautiful like peanut butter lattes and we've done a gingerbread latte for years and we've just launched the beetroot latte that I'm having now. So you can have these caffeine-free options and a lot of people, you know, will come in after about 11 a.m. and they'll say, can I have the decaf? When we educate them that you can have something that's sort of more nutritious and Mm. you can have something that's got nutrients in it. I think the key point last night at the health summit, we we were talking as a group about if you're addicted to the coffee, you're probably having too much. Yes. It's that when you get to that stage where you're like, I need it. You can't wake up without it. That's the problem. Yeah. You might want to dial it back a little bit. Yeah. And same if you can't have fun without drinking, you might want to dial it back a little bit. (laughs) Okay. So next next step on the list of the 12. Raising your heart rate. One of the main peer-reviewed studies I came across years ago was um, 23 minutes of exercise a day. And that was to alleviate anxiety or depression. And I love that. So it's not about, I used to pump myself out in the gym. I used to in one day do a spin class, a body pump class, a attack class. And I was doing like three hours of exercise. And then I couldn't work out why my adrenals were up all the time. And I was just driving myself into the ground. So now I just do things like yoga, Pilates, I cycle, I swim, and I just span them all out. And I love, I'm so lucky I've got friends that I can go play tennis with, just taking up golf. So I love just incorporating sport into my life. 
And that's when keeping it social. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do if you don't drink? Well, let's go play tennis. You know, we laugh and we have just as much fun and we wake up better the next day. And I think, you know, the blue zones, if you look at the blue zones, they don't exercise, you know, full on for hours and hours a day and putting their body body under enormous stress. Yeah. It's more. Have you heard of neat exercise? No. It's when you incorporate exercise into everyday life. So taking, it's an acronym, taking the stairs. You know, when you're on the phone, don't just sit at your desk, walk around the office. So just incorporating that exercise into your everyday life. Yeah, which is exactly what these, you know, longest living populations do. So that makes sense. Another huge one for me that was the biggest game changer that was actually, it's been written here in my serotonin formula for more than five years, but I only really took it on about 18 months ago is meditating. And I feel like it's the biggest thing that changed for me. And it was just something that kept coming up. Every podcast I listened to, every amazing entrepreneur speaks about it. And I went and did a Vedic meditation course in Melbourne. Um, the incredible Laura Poole, who I'll give a shout out to because she's amazing. And so now I just have a 20-minute morning and night practice. And that has been something that just helped my cortisol levels, helped my stress levels. But for me, the most importantly, I call myself a, an intellectual artist. I come up with all the ideas for here. So it helped my creativity which was something I had to go and really get out of Melbourne and get out of work to come up with ideas. But now being able to meditate just has given me more brain space, which, you know, people think they don't have 20 minutes in their time, but I love when you're scrolling on Instagram and it says, if you've got time to scroll, you've got time to meditate. So just talk us through that meditation at a high level, what, what you do. So for me, I've been given a mantra. So One Giant Mind has a really great app and they have a mantra on there that you can use. And that's what I started doing. And then when you do this course, you get given your own personal mantra. So I sit, I can just do it anywhere and just close my eyes. I take a few deep breaths. And then for me, I just say my mantra and it's a word you say in your head. And a really great way that Laura described it was you should say it as if it's a dream. You can't, you're trying to remember from 10 years ago. It's just really faint in the back of your mind. And I do that for 20 minutes. I keep a clock next to me. I do that for 20 minutes and you have to peek and then finally you get good enough. You know when the 20 minutes is. And then I take a couple minutes to come out of it. I take two to five minutes to come out of it. And I do that a lot of the time it's done in my car. I really want to make a hat or something that says, don't worry, I'm not dead. I'm meditating. <laughs> People <laughs> knock on my window all the time. <laughs> okay. So that's every morning and yep. night? Every morning and afternoon. Afternoon. Yep. Sometimes I'll sneak in one before bed if I really feel like it. But yeah, morning after I've sort of done my brush teeth morning routine, I sit back down and do that. And then the other one is after lunch. And the next step? The next step is connecting with others. So this is super important. And this is why I was so excited to open Serotonin, connecting with like-minded humans. And this is why I put on the health summit last night, bringing these people together. Like 80% of people came by themselves. And by the end, we had to kick people out last night. So it's so good to connect these people. And that's another thing from the blue zones. The number one thing is connection, longevity. Read and write, listen to music, educating yourself, smile, laugh, and be positive is one of the steps. And then the number one and most important for me is sleeping eight hours a night. And someone once said to me, the hours you get before midnight count as double. And sleeping eight hours was one of the biggest things. I'm currently writing a book on the serotonin formula. And we decided that chapter one had to be about sleep, good quality sleep. And this is everything leads into that, what you eat, you know, avoiding caffeine. So sleeping eight hours a night is number one for me. And on a personal sort of eating level, mm-hmm. Can you take us through your standard meals across the day? What are, yep. what are your go-to foods and go-to dishes off your menu? Exactly. Simon laughed at me last night because I really just eat from my own <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> um, so in the morning, I'll always start with a smoothie. When I'm at home, I do like a plant-based milk, coconut milk or almond milk. 
And then I add nut butters in there. I love hazelnut and macadamia butter at the moment. And then I'll add in some little superfoods like spirulina, camu, maca, and then bananas. Bananas are my absolute staple diet. So I normally have about three to eight bananas every morning now. And I love bananas. I love bananas. They're just... Do you freeze them or you have them? Freeze them. Yeah. Have to. Yeah. They're so, so good. So it's banana. I pretty much have banana ice cream every morning yeah. for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Hazelnut banana ice cream at the moment. And then I do cacao nibs on top and that's like my energy for the day. And then at lunchtime, my favorite is the nutrition bomb from here. So I just love eating complex fats, complex carbohydrates and just vegetables. Like when the base of your diet is vegetables, your digestion's a dream. And that was something that really changed for me going plant-based. You could never go back because your digestion just changes. And again, back when I did go vegan, I was doing the raw till four and I really love that ethos. So raw breakfast and I do like a big raw salad. It might be blanched vegetables now for lunch. And then I do a high carb cooked dinner. So I love curries for dinner and I always eat way too much for dinner and put myself into a food coma, but (laughs) I'm trying to get better at that. But just big vegetables. And we live in Melbourne, so we eat out all the time and I get Uber Eats from my own shop to my own house. So (laughs) very easy for me to eat healthy now. And we we spoke last night about the delivery side of things. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's Plastic Free July now as a cafe that is so important to this community and has so much influence over not only the Burnley, Richmond, Melbourne community, but social media wise, you're reaching people globally now. Sometimes I do mistakes on my menu. I'll accidentally call something the wrong name. It was an idea, but I didn't mean to do it. And then I was in Bali recently and they're using that same same name on their menu. Hilarious. (laughs) We're influencing people. Yeah. So that you you've got an enormous reach. Yep. Well, do you do you feel responsible for being, you know, somewhat of an example or a leader in terms of not only just the food but other conscious, you know, parts of you've living? You've given me a realization. I didn't, but I think yeah, I probably am and we're doing yeah, when I heard plastic free July was coming, I was actually speaking to a friend of mine who owns Yuki Threads and he's really looked at Patagonia and what they're doing and he's doing same things, doing fair trade production line and using organic cotton. And we said, we really want to work on showing people about single-use plastic. And then two months later, Plastic Free July popped up on our feed. So we love this. So we're using Cappy Gold Straws from now on. So we've got these, you know, reusable gold straws. We've got some of these at home. They're absolutely magnificent. And I think it's Cappy, K-A-P-P-I. Yeah. And they do like, um, they do those reusable bags. Yeah, they do the reusable bags. So in the last couple of months, exactly. You think you're sustainable. You think you're doing well. And then you just keep learning and learning. So the post I'm about to do today on our social media and I just traveled for a week and what I kept in my bag while I was traveling was a Tupperware container and then a knife, a fork, a spoon and a reusable straw and then of course a little reusable shopping bag. And you just start to realize and I've got my keep cup and I've got my water bottle. Those like seven things, I used them every single day and that means that I saved that plastic every single day. And there's a lot of places that sort of won't do takeaway food and a lot of my staff are very environmentally friendly and they were the ones that actually taught me this. And if they're out and they can't finish their meal, they just put it into their Tupperware container in their bag. And a lot of them are uni students. It's a great way. Now they've got lunch for the next day and saying no to the little things like the little sauce packets. And I went and got a haircut the other day and I went next door to the coffee shop and I didn't have my keep cup. And I said to them, can I just take the mug and I'll bring back the mug? And the guy was like, what? (laughs) He never even thought about this. And I was like, I'll just borrow your mug and then I'll bring it back in an hour after I've had my haircut. And he's like, oh, okay. Just those little things. You just open up so many people's eyes along the way. Do customers come in here like with their own bowl and say, can you fill up, can you fill up my bowl? Is that, um, does that fall? It hasn't happened yet, but I could not recommend it more. If you bring your own Tupperware container or if you bring your own bowl, that's exactly what we would love to start happening. It's the same as with the keep cups. We get keep cups 
at least 50% of the time now. And what we really started to do this month was educate people, all of our morning coffee drinkers. There was a study that I found in New Zealand that said coffee is drunk within 300 meters of the venue. So we're really encouraging people to come in and sit down, especially in the morning. It's pretty quiet in here. You can come in, have a chat to the staff. You know, you can sit and read the paper, do whatever you want to do. Sit down, take that time, stop, be mindful and actually enjoy your coffee and walk off down the street, checking your Instagram, listening to your music, listening to your podcast, doing a million things at once. So don't use that takeaway cup. Sit down, take that three minutes, just drink it, enjoy your morning and then go off and enjoy your walk too. Yeah. So it's like you can avoid the plastic and and get tremendous upside as well. Yes. And make it that human connection. (laughs) And to your point, if, you know, it does compound. So every day that you're introducing these habits of, you know, trying to avoid single use plastic, if you picture that in the bin of day on day, water bottle after water bottle, coffee cup after coffee cup, plastic takeaway, bowl after bowl, it adds up. Yeah. And I I recently was speaking with Zana Van Dyke, who she's, she lives in in London. She put me on to the documentary of Plastic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that one? Yep. Yep. So if anyone's listening, at the time I hadn't seen it and she recommended to go and watch it and it's pretty eye-opening. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As soon as you watch that, you, you really think, okay, I need to be a lot more conscious now. One person can make an impact. Yeah, huge. And it's not so much just concentrating on putting your plastic into the right bin. It's actually cutting down altogether on any single-use plastic where you can. Yeah. I've got a box at my door now and I've got some in the car because now it's great. Supermarkets in Melbourne aren't using any plastic bags. Now you've got to take it or you've got to carry it. So I love that. And then I take little um, cloth bags and she has them on her Cappy website. And that's what I put my vegetables in there. You know, you normally go and you rip off that little plastic yeah. bag. So I just use these bags and put all your veggies in there. And they keep so much better as well. And you look cooler. <laughs> Those Cappy bags are very cool. Supermarket's a good place to pick up people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you said you had traveled to LA. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt you've been to like Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre, probably mm. some of the other. Um, yeah, that's what I was picturing with their big yeah. courtyard. <laughs> it's a beautiful restaurant there in um, West Hollywood. A, what's your favorite place outside of Serotonin to eat, mm. you know, anywhere in the world? Mm-hmm. And secondly, where do you see this sort of momentum in the whole plant-based eating evolving to in the next five years? Have you heard the statistics of the growth that's going to happen in the next 10 years? Tell us. It's exponential. So... 10% of the world will go vegan in the next 10 years. And my favorite place to eat is actually going up into Ubud. So I'd been going to Bali for years and years and I'd never, you know, Ubud sounded like this distant place up in the mountains. And I started going there a few years ago and the food there is just, it's all actually local and it's all organic and it's very high vibrational food if that resonates with anyone. And I love going there. When we close over our Christmas break, it's the wet season. So I go up and I rent a little house up in the hills there and I pretty much just eat four meals a day. So I love food though. It really, when I opened, we were so crazy busy in the day that I wasn't getting to eat enough. So I would sit down and I would have like my three main meals in between 5 and 11 PM, just because I knew how important food and nutrition was for energy. So going up to Ubud, There's a lot of places up there. None of them really have this same sort of service that serotonin does, which is so important for me. My goal was to humanize hospitality again. I hated this unwelcoming feeling that you were getting in a lot of Melbourne cafes. It was sterile and you weren't welcome. You know, hospitality is about connecting humans. 
And I love you look over in Italy at how the owner welcomes you in and it's a beautiful whole experience. So that's what I wanted to bring back at Serotonin. I don't think that's over there yet, but I would love to take Serotonin over there and use the produce they have over there to do our own menu. And I think that there's actually a, I'm going to use the V word here. (laughs) There's a vegan festival on in Ubud yeah. in October. Well, I think it's in, in uh, Changu and and in uh, Ubud. So yeah. if anyone's over in Bali, look that up. I'm sure there'll be some interesting things there. Yeah. All right, Emily. Well, I would um, like to really thank you for joining me on this episode. It's been really, really cool just to to learn about the evolution of serotonin. I'm feeling inspired. I'm sitting up straight. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go. And, you know, I think for me personally, it's probably a good thing that I live in Bondi now because I would, <laughs> I'd be in here every day. You're like me. We sit somewhere. We're just like, we'll have one of everything. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, whenever I come down to Melbourne, this place feels like home. So thank you for just creating such a, a great, beautiful space for Melbourne. And I'm really excited to see what is in store for your future. Thank you. Have a happy day. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.